Hello everyone and welcome back to part 2 of our Okinawa episode. I'm your host Chennai Cheth and before we begin, we wanted to mention that the Ikasu 2021 online conference is now open for registration. Please check out the description box for more information on the conference and how to register. Hope to see you there virtually. I have a question. So yeah. um, for my Okinawan family, they actually moved to uh, Hawaii. They um, eventually became soldiers for the United States military. So kind of going back to Okinawa, do you feel as if a lot of them had, I guess, cultural differences once going to the United States and coming back? Or do you feel as if the Okinawan people supported them or just were completely anti-base? So you might find, and you will find, uh, Okinawan people who are happily, you know, who like want the base, you know, um, a lot of young people, right? And so this is also like maybe a, a generational divide too. There's a lot of younger people who might say, oh, we need the base because we need jobs. And, you know, we like you hear this as well in Hawaii. You hear this about the tourist industry and you hear about the military, that if like those two things go away, we don't have jobs or whatever. And you hear that also in Okinawa. I think the more you like understand the history of them and why they're there, you may see a different side of that. But one of the things that the base confers is a sense of importance that activity on the base means that you're like important. And so you live and you're part of something that is, has a wider ramification, especially on a small little island. Small islands tend to want attention because they feel forgotten. And that's sometimes, that's a, it's a good thing to be forgotten, but sometimes that's not how you want to necessarily always be remembered, right? Whether as civilian workers or as soldiers, um, will have a different response depending on who they're interacting with in the locality. I think that people people see it as a kind of, a, I wouldn't say a necessary evil, but like the fact of life that the base exists and the military exists, even though they may not be personally always happy with it, right? And this is what's really interesting, right? Like my, my one uh, uncle who passed away, he passed away in 94, great uncle, he actually served as a translator for the U.S. military in Okinawa at the end of the big battle there. They actually got a lot of people from Okinawans from Hawaii to do that work. And the reason why is because the the American military didn't have a way to distinguish between Okinawans and Japanese other than through language. And most Okinawans were like bilingual in Okinawan language Japanese. But all the Japanese officers and soldiers who were left on the island afterward tried to hide and pose as Okinawan. And so only Okinawans could tell who they were. It's, uh, it's even funny because my grandma, she grew up in Okinawa. And until she was, I think, a teenager, she didn't have a Japanese passport. She had an Okinawan passport. So she could really tell the difference once she moved to Brazil, how different... I guess the Japanese colonies were and the Japanese people were from, you know, actual Okinawans. Yeah. And, and remember that it was its own country until 1879. So exactly. it was, even though, you know, it had some diplomatic relationship with Japan, but Okinawa was its own kingdom until 1879. So it's not that long ago that it became part of, you know, it got colonized by Japan, right? Like, so they got colonized by Japan and then it got colonized by the U.S., kind of like a double layer yeah, the Okinawan people, that, that's one of the reasons why I think the identity remains so strong outside of Okinawa, because I know this. I remember my, my um, older 
uh, family members telling me about this, that uh, one of the reasons why they left Okinawa in the time they did was because um, Japanese emperor was starting to put these military schools in Okinawa to, to kind of create soldiers out of the farmers. So they decided to leave or just send their children away. You know about the questions that everybody was asked like before, and I know Vin knows about this because you read No No Boy. And the two questions were like, are you loyal to the emperor? And do you renounce loyalty to the emperor? And almost every single person who was Okinawan said no to both of those questions because no Okinawans were ever loyal to the emperor. And so they didn't have to renounce it. And so because of that, a lot of people went into the um, to incarceration. They didn't want to be part of the Japanese imperial instruction. They ended up um, leaving. The place that my grandpa is from um, is actually where they are going to try and where they're trying to build that base, that base on Hanako, which is way up in the north part of the island, uh, Nago City, which is, it doesn't have very much up there, but that's near Arming Village that my grandpa, my grandpa came from, that they are now trying to build a base. So this was the kind of like the, the poorest and most forgotten part of the island was the north. And then so now all of that attention is focused there. You know, when they left, my, my grandpa left Okinawa when he was 13 years old, right? He didn't have uh, any education. His older brother had gone before him. So that's why he went. You know, when they left, they were illiterate. They couldn't write their own name. Uh, they didn't speak uh, Japanese there is a kind of a language barrier between Okinawans and Japanese, not just culturally. There's a lot of racism toward Okinawan people and <laughs> by, by Japanese, especially at that time, who spread kind of like rumors that like ja- Okinawans had tails because Okinawans were poorer than the Japanese immigrants. A lot of times in Hawaii, we were pig farmers, right? Like a lot of, a lot of Okinawans went to pig farming. The Okinawan people, I think, developed... Um, especially in diaspora, having to live, um, that they were forced into this situation where they had to become really defensive over their own identities in the diaspora. There wasn't as strong a pressure to become Japanese. But in Okinawa, you find a really, really strong, heavy emphasis on becoming more and more Japanese um, over the course of the century. That local, that more local identity kind of got really threatened. I see in Brazil, like, it's crazy. Like, Brazil has huge Okinawan festivals that like they look like the Hawaii ones, but they're like 10 times the scale. You know, they have these um, Okinawan sanshin players, right? The three string instrument, which a lot of people think is Japanese, but actually that originated in Okinawa. And that was actually brought Okinawa by Portuguese people. You know what I mean? So um, when you see those geisha playing the, 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 um, Sanshin, you know, the three-string uh, string instrument, that was originally an Okinawan uh, design. Because, like, what they had was these snakeskin Sanshin, and, and every Okinawan family had, like, one of these in their corner in their house, you know? You've I seen have, those? I have one yeah. in my house. You have yeah. them. I started getting really into that kind of stuff. Seeing, like, whoa, like, this is the stuff that my great-uncle used to play you know, and he used to play in this Okinawan, Japanese and Okinawan group, and they would just sing these Okinawan songs that like, you know, and Okinawan music has this like really particular sound to it, right? It doesn't sound like Japanese music at all. And the music is really something that brings people together. Okinawan people like to dance. 
and the Okinawan kimonos and that big hats, right? Um, which are super different, very colorful, right? Like very different than, than what you see in a Japanese kimono, which are usually like very monotone or subdued colors, right? All, my family had these dolls, like these amazing, you know, like, Boring. I guess that's the one thing that they, the culture share. You have that as well? The, the dolls or? Yeah, my, in my house at home. So I'm from Virginia and my parents are still there. And like they have a whole like decorative room that's like that's like has all of like these like Okinawan Japanese like trinkets and artifacts where like the sunshin like sits in the corner and then like it's like the dolls like sit in like their individual cases and like these like things and so I'm gonna like ask my parents to like send over some pictures and have to take a look at that. Yeah, the the dancing women with the big hats. That's what I always remember and. Um... You know, I used to see, like, and when they had the performances, because, like, you know, Hawaii, like, a lot of dance culture, right? Because we have hula, and we have, but we also have the tankobon, we have, like, the, the, the Japanese dances, and we have the Okinawan dance. And, um, you know, they would always be on stage, you know, one after another, uh, the different um, kinds of uh, styles of dancers. But I remember always, like, kind of marveling that the Okinawan kimonos, the Okinawan dances, Looks so different. They were just so much, so radically different from anything you find in Japanese culture. Um, it's those kinds of things actually that are really wonderful about Okinawan culture that's coming back because there are like, there are like popular music groups, right? That are like actually making Okinawan music really popular in Japan. And so you see this kind of like revival in, um, in uh, music and culture that that's really wonderful. Something that I thought was only kind of really well hidden, you know, in certain kind of diaspora communities. Then, you know, you watch Japanese uh, TV shows or whatever. I mean, it's, in some way, it's kind of like hacky and touristy mm -hmm. the way that the Japanese view Okinawa. Like they view it as their like their mini Hawaii, right? Like that this is their vacation island, you know. But also kind of like interesting that you know, fifty years ago they would have been very very like nothing they didn't want anything uh okinawan culturally but now they have the now they have the like japanese bars now have like orion beer which is like a really specific okinawan beer you know like that nobody knows about you know but now it's like something that people know about it's my dad's favorite beer he like gets it like in like cases and orders it like on amazon because you can't get it like, yeah beer. right it's one of those things that you know you like that's one of those those really specific things like i'm here in in philadelphia in the east coast and you know when i go to the west coast i miss the beer that's here like yangling and stuff like that that i you can't get in the west coast but it's kind of like the same thing, right? Like you got Orion beer and you got these kinds of, um, uh, these kinds of uh, foods and the fish cake and stuff like that, that really you can't really find um, in other places. In, um, in mainland Japan, and there's actually a lot of Okinawan themed bars and restaurants. So you have like the Shisa and then you have like the Taiko music playing that's mm -hmm. specific to Okinawa, the different shamisens that are being played. Like it's just very, it feels like Japan really is trying to, I guess, show off Okinawa as both a part of Japanese culture, but also something more foreign and exotic because they really like to kind of commodify 
uh, Okinawan culture and like try to appreciate it, but at the same time still like it, look at it as if like they're not Japanese Japanese. Yeah, and that brings up such an interesting point, right? Mm-hmm. Like that, you know, we talk about it so much in the U.S. cultural appropriation, right? And what is cultural appropriation? Um, and thinking about those kinds of uh, issues, you know, like there's something really wonderful about the revival of Okinawan culture and um, uh, music and language. But that's one of the actual, that, that's one of the critical points, right? Is that J- Japanese love to commodify that for their own purposes, right? It's not on behalf of the, like, so that's the thing about, that's the thing about the politics and the representation, right? That, that really, um, um, that really gets put into conflict with each other, right? So having, uh, having um, Okinawan themed bars with the Shisa dog and, and um, Orion beer and the Gables, you know, that's one thing, right? But what about really helping Okinawan people, right? Like uh, some of the poorest people in all of, uh, all of the nation state of Japan who are very much struggling um, with all kinds of economic and uh, structural and political problems relating to the bases and pollution, right? And environmental destruction. So, you know, you see that that's kind of like the way in which like, you know, dream catchers in the U.S. get sold, you know, at like stores. But then, you know, you're tear gassing uh, Native American or protesting the pipeline. You know, you, Disney can make Pocahontas, but, you know, can it can it then fund doctors for for uh, Navajo nations who got hit hard by COVID? Right. Like so all these kinds of things, right, like where you see culture becomes commodified. Japan does that in in its own way. Very frequently, we don't talk about necessarily the Asian American uh, appropriation of like Hawaiian stuff, like which we also see too, um, or or other native um, Pagan things. But then also the the Japanese and and also Korean appropriation of like uh, indigenous cultures as well, right? Uh, that that kind of thing um, is also applicable to the Ainu people because. Japan only recently recognized the Ainu people as an indigenous group. And um, the recognition, the political recognition of the Ainu people was actually split among the activists. Some activists liked it, but others said that it was a way of, it was a way of um, commodifying Ainu culture for Japanese tourists to go to the North. Cause like, Hokkaido, that North Island, was colonized roughly the time as Okinawa was colonized. But today, Hokkaido is in the uh, Japanese imaginary. That's a that's a wilderness where you go to like test and find yourself. You know, a lot of the Ainu got actually displaced from Hokkaido and live in the cities now, and so they had had to hide their identity. And they also took on Japanese last names in the 19th century, so then they became indistinguishable. Um, from uh, from the rest of peop- from the rest of the Japanese population, but there is now a communities of Ainu who live in the cities who are like now kind of uh, bringing back their their identity, um, and then also uh, using it to kind of like to challenge this this myth of Japanese 
homogeneity. I think Okinawa has a big part to play in this, right? And how their culture um, is represented. But it's really hard because you have J- Japanese political culture in Japan is very hegemonic, right? In, a, in, in a very much the same way as many other cultures around the world. It's not unique. I don't know what your sense of it is, Enzo, if you think that um, Japanese people in Japan have a different sensibility than diasporic uh, Japanese. Um, Honestly, I think that um, Japanese people in general, just talking to a bunch of people and growing up there, they didn't really understand that, you know, like Japanese Brazilians, Japanese Mexicans, Japanese Peruvians, Japanese Americans really existed. Mm -hmm. They just kind of thought that immigration from Japan was just very uh, minimal, that there weren't like large waves of people coming. One thing that I did realize though, is that when you went to Okinawa, uh, speaking to a lot of relatives and family friends, all of them knew that there were populations of Okinawans across the world. So it's really just kind of, um, it's interesting to, to see the perspective of how people see mainland Japan and just Japuting Okinawa in general, as well as like, you know, immigration. Um, one thing I like, one question that I really had uh, specifically was about Japanese politics. So Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, he um, really looked for, you know, like a new nationalist sense of Japan, more militarization, uh, anti-base, kind of calling for a new Japanese identity. Do you think that the people of Okinawa really just, in general, support more Japanese nationalist views, or do they support what's currently being in place as like, oh, they're in the middle of both American and mainland Japanese ties, which is like kind of confusing? I don't, I don't know if I can even answer that. But one thing I will say, it's very hard, I think, if you live in and around the base it's very hard for you to to live in a kind of a more sequestered kind of community. A lot of Japanese can actually live in their own spaces and vicinity without actually coming into contact with non-Japanese. There's a lot of places in Japan that are kind of like that, kind of like in the U.S., right? Like if you go, like I've lived in, you know, central PA, and I've gone to like towns there where they've never seen like a black person yeah. in, in the 21st century, right? Like, except for on TV, but like they've never encountered uh, like a person of color uh, in their town. And I've met students who like when I taught at Penn State, I met students who had never seen a non-white teacher before, you know what Uh, I mean? Like, so, you know, and I was their first one. I was their first person. Like, so if you kind of like live like that, like you can instill a nationalist sentiment pretty easily, right? Like, but it's kind of hard to do that when you got an American flag waving in front of you because that's always going to lead to alternative uh, kinds of consciousnesses. Hawaii is so remote on a, on a planet, face of the planet. It's the most remote large population, right, in the world. And I lived on the, like the, on the very rural side of the island, but we still had military bases all up and down. And we knew people come in from all over. So we saw that. And then my dad also, like when he went to high school, in Hawaii, like he had people from Mariana Islands, you know, Northern Mariana Islands and Guam and other places in the Pacific. So we knew that we knew that places existed around us and we knew our history and we knew that, you know, the U.S. was was there, even though it, we weren't really part of it. So if you're Okinawan, I can't imagine that Abe's sense of that narrow nationalism 
can really find footing there, except for probably only the most extreme far-right elements. They're they're there. Uh, And I haven't been to the protest sites, but I have a lot of friends who do that. And those Yakuza vans that drive around blaring nationalist messages, yeah, they are the Yakuza, but they're also extreme nationalists. They have all of their eggs tied up in these military bases. Like, that just is their support. The more that they can, like, you know, think about it in, in the geopolitics of the region, the more that Abe can stoke fears about North Korea or China, the more that it can funnel energy into the base projects in Okinawa. If there's, if there's peace between North and South Korea, there's no need for a military base in Okinawa. That's actually, Abe knows that. That's why it was so momentous when Moon Jae-in did right, the president of South Korea. And, you know, he was the first South Korean president to go to North Korea. Trump tried to force a sale of anti-missile, and he was going to put it on Jeju Island, right? So this is a very small island on the border of North and South Korea. Moon Jae-in said no. He actually refused this, um, this deal. And it was like a multi-million dollar military arms trade. South Korea never used to say no to these things, but he, he did for the first time because he looked on one side, he said, I see Trump and Abe on one side and I see Kim Jong-un on the other side. He's like, I can only trust Kim Jong-un at this point. You know what I mean? And like that, that says something, right? That says something to the rest of the world. And that's why you see a lot of turmoil in the region right now. Because if Moon goes across to the north and says, hey, like we don't have to reunify, let's come to a peace agreement. And why do we need to build that expanded base in Hanoko? It's part of a puzzle. You can't actually like separate out regional politics from what happens in Okinawa. That's why it's like so interesting that Okinawa is a small island in the East China Sea. It is literally the linchpin for a whole U.S. Um, geopolitical strategy in the region. And if if they if they leave Okinawa, like that would be that would change the whole um, nature of like all of the country's relationships. Do you think that the uh, militarization of Okinawa and kind of just the history of U.S. imperialism and just the the sense of identity within Okinawans has kind of created a stronger tie between Okinawans and Pacific Islanders versus Okinawans and Japanese people um, throughout history? Well, I think, I think that the anti-base activists definitely have like created a kind of community with the uh, anti- base activists on Guam and in Hawaii. So there's definitely a, like a group there. I don't know to what extent they, the, the larger population in Okinawa like sees the rest of the Pacific as you know, part of it, right? Or they're part of it among the people who are active in, in those circles around Okinawan culture and Okinawan um, politics and, and especially the anti-base movement. The, the, the base... People in Hawaii know about the Hanoko base project. They follow that really, really closely because it happened to us in Hawaii. And more recently, too, with Pohakuloa training area being expanded, right? Like, so they expanded a lot of these uh, military bases. There's like pro-base side and and anti-base side. And Denny Tamaki came to Washington, D.C. to try to appeal to um, Obama in in the last term to try to get him to turn around the media ignored him. You know, the media ignored him. They, they ignore a lot of stuff about Okinawa. That's actually on purpose, right? It's not actually on, because if, if, you, if you actually tell Americans 
what is going on there, they would actually be against that base. So it's imperative that no media covers uh, Okinawan base politics, that so many people in the military know about it, but they don't actually, they don't talk about it at all. I know personally have um, been stationed there. Some, some of my friends were born there um, because of their um, parents. And so it's not like people don't know about it, but it's that the larger, wider public don't have any information. They don't have the context to understand it. Yeah, I mean, I just yeah. had a quick question about, like, when you say anti-based movement, isn't that synonymous with the Ryukyu, like, independence movement? I wouldn't necessarily, like, I think there's a lot of overlap, but I don't necessarily think that they're the same thing. The anti-based movement is really heavily targeted on in one island. It's only the main island of Okinawa that has bases. I know that there are like smaller installations on other islands, but it's not actually like full on bases, right? So the base movement is one thing. And I think that 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 comes out of a legacy of anti-Vietnam War activism in Okinawa. So like, if you understand where Naha is in the middle of Okinawa and then where Henoko is supposed to be way up in the north, it's supposed to be in a more remote area. So they're saying, the problem with um, with Camp Schwab was that, you know, it's in the middle of the city, you know, and you can't avoid it. So they want to move all of that out um, away from the people. So it's like they, they expand it, but it's also becomes less of a nuisance to the local population because that's what they think that this is actually about. But a lot of people have much more deeper set of reasons for opposing the base. You'll see that there were um, a lot of negotiations about the base about how the base was structured and what concessions it was supposed to be given because the people felt very powerless. And that's what I think really happened. And I think that that's what happens in Hawaii today, which is that, you know, you look at the U.S. military, this large organization that is almost unstoppable. If they're going to tell you they're going to do something, they're just going to do it, you know, and what choice do you have? Do you negotiate with them, you know? And if you do try to they're going to do it anyways. Let's try to make it like somehow easier, get something out of it. And I think that that's actually the kind of, the kind of um, mentality that uh, probably existed in Okinawa. Like what leverage does a small island have against this huge military? That's probably, that's probably where a lot of this um, resentment comes from, that the Americans were going to do whatever they wanted anyways, and they ended up doing that anyways. And then you see um, somebody like uh, Rina uh, Shimabukuro, Right. Rina Shimbukuro was murdered by a U.S. base worker. You know, this was in 2016. Right. So kind of re- really recent. There was um, no uh, no allowance for any kind of uh, local investigation. Local police couldn't investigate and bring in suspected murderer. There's there's no leverage that Okinawan people feel like we're powerless because they can do this over and over again and still never get any anything in terms of any kind of justice, right? There were all kinds of other um, things like uh, you're not allowed to commemorate these murders at all, like publicly, you know? So there's like a real um, suppression speech uh, of speech rights 
And you see that as well. Like, and it, it's actually the, the prefectural police who actually enforced this, right? So it's not even the U.S. military police. It's actually the Japanese prefectural police does not allow these kinds of commemorations. There's a lot, I think, um, that the base uh, brings up because you, you're, you were suggesting that maybe the Ryukyu independence movement and the base are, are together. I think that that's what drives it closer together. It's not just a base, but it's also like, you know, when Okinawans need help, like who do they turn to, right? Because they can't turn to Japan when the U.S. does this because J- Japan, they don't actually, they, they'll just kind of take the side of the U.S. I've, I've looked at Japan mainly as an outsider, even though I'm ethnically Japanese and Okinawan. They still don't really consider me Japanese since my family immigrated to Brazil the entire diaspora was just very different and yeah. history-wise. So I guess my personal perspective and just the way I see things have been very, I guess, just more Americanized. But, you know, like, that's the thing, right? Like, we live outside mm-hmm. and then we see it in a, in a different prism, right? And we can, see, we can see things, you know, differently. So, Adam, at the end of every podcast, we try to ask all of our guests this one question. What is one good thing we can do to make the world a better place? If, if there's one thing I would say, especially if you're on the younger side um, and you're just starting to get interested in things, is like read as much as you possibly can. Understand like without, you know, preconception, right? Understand that you come to any issue with your own biases and try to like work through them. If like sometimes like you'll hear with any, anybody from any country, a lot of times there is a kind of like an impulse that, especially if we come from a community that's been looked down upon, discriminated against, to defend your culture, your, you know, where you come from and everything else. That's a natural response, right? But then there's also the response of being really a good critical thinker when it comes to that. Like, um, don't fall in tribalist or nationalist kind of sentiments, but understand what forces are at play in order to not like, you know, misjudge, right? A lot of times like that's what, that's what we have right now because we grew up with our parents' understandings of things. Sometimes our parents were wrong about something, sometimes they're, they're, they're right about something, you know what I mean? And so it's up to you to figure out like which, which is the right way and the wrong way. You can only do that if you really take a good, hard, close read at things um, without these preconceived ideas, try to work against them. There's, there are very many things that I really love about the cultures I come from, but then there's also major problems, right? So we can always like acknowledge that, you know, always interrogate our own positionality, right? Like we have a word in Hawaiian, kuleana, right? What is our responsibility? So you have to remember what's your kuleana, what's your positionality in terms of thinking about these things, right? If an Asian police officer kills a black man, right? Like we have a, we have a duty to really like stand up for the black community, like as Asian people, despite the race or character of, a, of an Asian person. It's not about identity representation. It's really about like what we have as our responsibility to like all of us. Thank you, everyone, for listening to part two of our Okinawa episode. If you want to learn more about Akasu's programming, please check out the description box below. 
We hope to upload new episodes of our podcast once every two weeks, so be on the lookout for new episode releases. This episode was transcribed by Liren Ma and Carolyn Liu. Our intro and outro music is brought to you by Sarah King and I Love Brandon. Community Echo.